Hi everyone and welcome to a, uh, another Data Dialogue hosted by the Centre for Data Leadership, uh, which is an initiative uh, launched by the Smart Cities Council in January this year. My name is Adam Beck, I'm Executive Director of the Smart Cities Council for the region here in Australia and New Zealand uh, and uh, host, of, uh, host of our Data Dialogues. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping, you're all currently uh, on mute, however, we do have the, uh, the, the question chat box uh, open and active, so please um, please use that at any time. Uh, I'm joined today by some fantastic guests, two of which you can see in person, uh, a third which is hiding behind the, uh, the black screen. Unfortunately, we couldn't get Jess's um, webcam up and running, but uh, all three of us uh, all three of our guests uh, are, are sort of mostly here. Um, I'd just like to start with a few um, a few little uh, uh, housekeeping uh, issues, um, if I may. First of all, uh, we'll uh, we'll do some uh, introductions shortly, and then we'll get our dialogue underway. Uh, the Q and A's, as I mentioned, will um, uh, will uh, go throughout. So I will uh, I will dive into the question box throughout the session. Um, so please uh, queue those questions up and feel free to send them to us at any time. We will um, we'll also finish with a couple of uh, quick, uh, quick sort of advertisements uh, and notes. Um, this, uh, this session, this Data Dialogue, uh, is uh, part of Smart Cities Week. Smart Cities Week uh, traditionally is an in-person gathering hosted by the Smart Cities Council when we bring our community together once a year. It was uh, penned in for uh, August in Melbourne in person, but of course the world has changed somewhat. So what we did is we salvaged what we could from our program uh, and we sent stuff, some stuff into, um, into an online format and we sort of put a couple of things on hold for next year when we can come back together in person. Uh, but encourage you all to head to the website to check out the program. It's more than 20 different online engagements scattered across seven months, all very different and diverse with different purposes and outcomes. And this session today is, uh, is part of our monthly data dialogue series. So every month, third Tuesday, every month, an hour and a half, we dive into a particular topic around the concept of data activation. Last month we had uh, data exchanges, uh, today we're talking about data trusts, uh, next month we're going to be doing city analytics and after that digital twins, so different ways by which we activate data and uh, hopefully extract some value and we can make better decisions from it and that's really the theme that we're trying to advance. And that theme very much is uh, is sort of the, the, the mission and the core goal of the Centre for Data Leadership, which is to really make sure that we, uh, we value our data, we love data, we use it, create value from it. But we do that, of course, in, a, um, in an appropriate way. Uh, and today, um, with more than any other topic, we'll certainly be touching on um, ways in which we use data for what purposes, uh, no doubt we'll probably touch on equity and ethics and a few other bits and pieces. So very, uh, very much looking forward to this, um, uh, this topic today. Uh, and it's a bit of a personal interest uh, of mine, the concept of the data trust and particularly civic data trusts. Um, uh, so without further, uh, without further delay, uh, as I mentioned, we do have uh, three 
guests. You can see two of them. Um, Jess is, uh, is here by voice. Uh, our guests um, come from uh, various different sort of parts of the world, but as I, as I sort of uh, reflected on the briefing note, I sent them all, uh, all of them very much coming together with a, uh, with a common thread around data and sharing and equity uh, and better outcomes for communities uh, and, uh, and our cities. Uh, we've got Amy Whitcroft, who's coming to us from New Zealand, uh, founder of Data4D. Um, if that's not enough, uh, Amy also hangs out um, as a, a counsellor with Internet NZ. She's an advisory board member of Open Data Charter. She's also a co-founder and partner of GovWorks New Zealand. So no shortage of everything data there. Thanks, Amy, so much for joining us. Um, we also have Dorothee uh, Beljevic from uh, Lend-Lease, uh, somewhat new to the role. I don't know if seven, eight months is sort of still considered new, uh, but very much um, an exciting role there and somewhat of a new role uh, that I'm sure she'll talk about, head of data science practice at, uh, at Lend-Lease. Uh, before that, uh, you know, nothing less than sort of a decade or so at the Reserve Bank of Australia, uh, a little bit of time academia, Westpac, um, I, I won't go any further than that, but um, a, a stellar career so far when it comes to uh, data and uh, value and platforms and uh, all good things, data science. And Jessica Christensen-Franks, our, our, uh, our, our, our mystery person in the, in the spare box there today. Uh, Jess, is there? Hi, Jess, can you say hi to us? Hi. 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 Oh, you've got an echo going on there, Jess. Hi, I'm um, on my computer now too, so. Oh, I'm you are. In a moment. <laughs> Fantastic, thanks so much for joining. So Jess does exist, she is online, uh, and she is co-founder and CEO of Neighbourlytics. Hi. Oh, <laughs> and she is here in person. Thank you so much, oh. Jess. Um, so um, a landscape architect by trade, uh, and very much uh, spent the last uh, couple of decades around shaping um, places and neighbourhoods uh, and communities, and now very much in the world uh, of looking at data-driven um, sort of community development, uh, social well-being, and equity and prosperity. Jess, I've still got an echo coming through on one of your devices. Devices. Okay, let's see if that's better. Excellent, that sounds great. Um, so, uh, thanks so much to our three guests who are all here in person now. Okay, how we're going to run this is firstly, we're going to open up with a three minute statement from each of you. I've asked you to prepare uh, a three minute introductory statement. I really didn't give you uh, much more of a brief than that. However, the question I've asked you to respond to is, why did you accept the invitation to be part of this conversation around data trusts? So I'm just gonna work through um, the, the gallery of thumbnails that I have in front of me in terms of order, which means Dorothea, that means you're going first. So can I get you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the timer on here. I'm gonna, gonna give you each a one, a one minute buzzer. Uh, so your opening three minute statement, Dorothea, in terms of uh, joining us, I will get you to start now thank you so good morning and hello everyone so as you saw my name is Dorothea Blagovich and I'm heading up the data science practice at Lendlease so this is for all of our external products across Lendlease Digital 
And what that means is you would have seen that Lendlease has been across the portfolio in property and construction, retail, residential, military, living, commercial, et cetera, et cetera. But what we want to do is build the best places. And in order to do that, guess what? We need data and hence my role. But that's not the key of the role. You see in the name of my title, there's data, but there's also practice. And something very, very personal to me is how do we make sure that we have the right and responsible use of data for building these products, especially for our places? And that's also a personal factor for me because I'm doing research in ethical decision-making. So what that means is we don't just do security by design, privacy by design, but also community expectations by design. How do we make sure we're doing this in a purposeful manner? Every single data challenge, especially in Civic, is going to have three issues, I guess. One is the quality of the data will never be the best. Second is no matter how much you try and clean the data and provide clear insights and context, people always misappropriate and bias you. And the third is some decision still needs to be made, regardless if you have data or not, whether it's good or bad. And why I'm excited to be part of this conversation with this lovely panel is civic trusts and civic data trusts might be that vehicle to help us mobilize and move forward specifically around placemaking and communities. So that's why I'm here this morning. Fantastic, thank you so much for that uh, introduction. Um, Jess, we're gonna move over to you. Let me reset the timer. Dorothea came in at two minutes, no pressure. This is not a competition. <laughs> you have three minutes. Uh, I'll let you go now, thank you. Thanks, Adam, and let me know if the, the echo is too bad. Hopefully it's okay. Um, so, great. So my um, my background, as you might have been able to tell by me not being able to get my webcam to start this morning, is not technical at all. Uh, and now here I am as uh, as co-founder of Neighbourlytics. So we're a very fast-growing uh, data analytics startup based out in Melbourne. We've been going for about two to three years now. Um, but my background and sort of why I think I'm here in this kind of conversation now is you know, very untechnical from landscape architecture and urban design. And, and really I spent a career of nearly two decades thinking about how to make better cities. And I became a landscape architect because I'm fascinated by community. I grew up living all over the world um, as a military kid. And so I'm not from anywhere, but I, I felt very connected to the communities that I was fortunate enough to be part of. So it was very foreign to me when I became a practitioner in my 20s. And there was this notion that you have to be from somewhere and grow up somewhere to be part of that community community, whereas that's not actually how the world works. So my um, city-making career was down this path of how can I better understand cities? And so I've been much more interested in social planning and economic forces really than the design aspect of urban design, much to my uh, the frustration of my urban design bosses across the years. Um, and really for me, data is just a tool to help me understand those things. And so I'm not an expert in data from the sense, from the academic sense or even understanding the right language to use around it, but I am a product of the new world that we find ourselves in right now where data and technology is so accessible and now people like me can come at solving the problems we've been trying to solve through our careers in this very, very new way. And that's what really excites me about the idea of data trust is because it's a another way of thinking about data accessibility and putting it into the hands of people that are just trying to solve really interesting problems. And, you know, I, there's a lot of things we can talk about today, but I'm very passionate about data as a tool to One see minute. the unseen. You know, you can now see 
things that weren't seeable before. We measure social life of neighbourhoods and there wasn't a way to measure that until we started tracking Strava and Facebook and Instagram and Eventbrite and we we're looking at these ebbs and flows of neighbourhoods and it's very empowering for practitioners, it's very empowering for communities um, but also data is a great equaliser and I hope we have that conversation today that it's not just for experts. We can actually make it accessible to everyone and really create this equal playing field to make great decisions. Excellent. Jess, thank you so much for that. Let me reset the clock. And Amy, uh, bringing it home with your three minutes, we are underway. Over to you. <laughs> Kia ora, everybody. I, uh, I hope you're all doing well in, in these strangest of times. I try not to use the words weird or unprecedented. <laughs> Um, so yes, uh, as, as Adam mentioned, I come from a very broad set of backgrounds and it's way broader and weirder than that. I might have attention issues, but uh, the reason that I became interested in data trusts and other forms of data initiatives and, and data institutions over the last few years is A, because it's fun watching academics fight with each other, um, <laughs> but, but also more, more seriously than that, I think that um, as, as the other wonderful panelists have said, you know, data is incredibly important. We're generating more and more and more of it. But up until relatively recently, there hasn't been a lot of discussion about why we're collecting it, what we're doing with it, and in service of whom. So data as tool, not data as an end in itself. Um, and I think that it's quite easy to, to get caught up in sort of dataism as the new religion. But we, we've also seen a, a number of organizations and governments basically use data against people or use it in ways that I don't think serve the best interests of us uh, as human beings and as communities, incredibly importantly. Now, I also come from a, uh, I've, I've moved around a lot. So yes, place is fascinating for me and I've learned to care about it hugely, but I've never had a strong feeling for it. But nonetheless, it should be in service of our communities, whether that's geographic communities or not. Um, and a lot of that, uh, and why I'm another reason I'm excited about data trusts is it has the potential to be truly multidisciplinary and multi-stakeholder in a way that I haven't seen a lot of conversations. So bringing together governments, local and central, bringing together the private sector, bringing in citizen engagement as well, you know, and 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 NGOs, and really starting to get everybody thinking about what does governance look like. Um, to some extent, that the, the the tech is somewhat solved in some ways in terms of the platforms one can use, but what does it mean? Like, how do we give people control of our data as opposed to ownership of our data? And I think data trusts are a way to elevate that discussion and get it a lot more interesting, but a lot kinder. And I think we've lacked kindness with data over time. Why did I join this? I've known Adam for years. It's awesome. I love what uh, the Smart Cities Council and um, CFDL are doing. I think it's really, really, really important. And all of this will be in service of digital twins and, and their less nerdy cousins, smart cities, um, as, as we try to steer things, I think, on a kinder and better path. And we've started to see what that could look like with COVID, but we stand at a bit of a knife edge at the moment. Thanks, uh, thanks, Amy. And, and thanks, team, for those introductions. Amy, I'm, I'm coming straight back to you to start with, if that's okay. Um, you, you've, you've certainly <laughs> been sort of neck deep in the open data world for, for quite some time. That That's a deep passion of, of yours. Can we just start with sort of some of these data trust fundamentals and sort of let's break down this definition. Um, we've, we've, we've been using the words sort of data trust and civic data trust interchangeably in sort of the first 20 minutes of this conversation. We'll, we'll sort of slowly clean that up. 
let's just start start with sort of data trusts, sort of open data. Uh, Amy, break down for us uh, similarities, differences. Is, is it all the same in your mind? Knowing both of these beasts quite well, how, how would you sort of, you know, sort of bring some delineation to these concepts? I would say the core thing around data trusts, and, and I mentioned this very briefly uh, in my earlier statement, is um, the idea of data ownership versus data control. Uh, data ownership is still uh, something that people talk about a lot. I own my data. What do I do with it? And I think that data trusts are a way to, to talk more about data control. I may not it gets really complicated and super fun and academics fight about it but i think having control over the data that's about us and about our spaces and having a say in what happens with that data um and and who does what with it and the decisions that come out of that i think that's what data trusts are they're also they're, they're a means for either opening data interestingly enough they normally are spoken about as a means for sharing data now when i say that Yes, you could argue, well, open data is a subset of shared data, but it confuses the hell out of everybody. So for the purposes of this discussion, I say when I say shared data, I mean data shared between organizations, but not necessarily opened up. Once you've opened data, you can't really set in place who does what with it. Um, so they all interact really, really, really strongly with each other. The delineations aren't clear, and I'm not sure they ever could be, because there are always going to be and there should be these messy, permeable barriers between how we're thinking about it and what we're doing. But the great thing about data trust is because this is so new, there's still so much space for us all to define what that means, rather than having that definition taken away from us, um, which we've we've seen with uh, <coughs> some some um, uh, <laughs> Toronto. <coughs> um, so data trust, I think, is a it's a wonderful sort of hold all, and and there's great discussion about whether there are fiduciary responsibilities or not. Civic data trusts, to me, are specifically about our place, our cities, and, and how we feel about that, whereas data trusts could be much wider than that. Mm -hmm. Did that make any sense? It's a huge question, mate. <laughs> well, 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 that, well, that's for the audience to decide. I, I, uh, I, I found it um, uh, riveting. Um, the, the civic word's an interesting one, isn't it? And, and Amy, you challenged me on this last year when you were reviewing a paper of mine and I said civic data trust and you said what do you mean by civic you really need to define that and I went back into sort of you know the the, the classic um, uh, sort of what do you call those things now dictionaries you know and it goes way back to sort of the ancient Rome times you would hand over a wreath with acorns when you saved a life you know that 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 that, that, that original trace back of civic and, and the civic and the city and the people um, just coming to you next around the idea of civic and under her breath, Amy muttered the word Toronto. Um, we, we, we we kind of know know what the nod is there. Talk to me uh, about um, sort of civic data trusts and your current sort of space. We have had conversations on and off about your support but then also in some ways you, you're sort of uh, your sort of skepticism about civic data trusts share share what uh, what and why you know you, you kind of tread that line of, of interested but cautious as well sure so so I think I mean Toronto is a very sensitive topic for me because I used to live there for a couple of years as well uh, before the uh, intruders came and have since left 
uh, and, and Toronto is a great example because it is such a civic minded community, you know, for such a massive city, you know, uh, it was the, the, the original home of Jane Jacobs. And so this sense of civic responsibility by the citizens to come forward and be accountable for the decisions made in their city. Absolutely, there have been terrible decisions. They've got elevated freeways along the waterfront and all sorts of things, but the community are much more are vocal and empowered about those things. It's in the public discourse so much more than I've seen in Australian cities. And uh, and that's why it's actually even more terrifying that that something like Sidewalk Labs could happen in a city like that, and you know, subsequently not. Um, but because there's a lot of cities that don't have that level of, of empowerment. But when I think about to your question, Adam, about civic about data trusts, um, you know, what Amy said when she introduced herself around data as a tool, I am so on board with that. But so often things like trust can be used as like the outcome because it's a procurement process, there's a governance thing that has to be put in place and then we end with this thing that is a trust rather than, or whatever it might be, or this rather than thinking of data as a tool to, to, to make decisions. And I think that's a very common mistake that's used right across the data world, that data is seen to have all the answers, it, it is a thing, it's an outcome, it's not a method of, of learning, which is actually, all it is is maths, it's just counting stuff, right? And so you need to count the right things. You need to understand the context of what's being counted. You need to really understand what's why some things get counted, some things don't. So um, when we're thinking about that level of complexity, you know, even the experts can't necessarily understand that or talk about the right things. No wonder there's public fear. Like no wonder people are worried about the, the way that their data is used. And I, I want to see, I had a glimmer of hope when the Cambridge Analytica fiasco happened that we would see a much more sophisticated public discussion around what public and private means in the online world. Um, we, we saw that happen, you know, over the last few decades and indeed longer than that in the real world where, where like shopping centres became privatised public space and this sort of um, discomfort that they can't act private when in fact they have a, pro a public function and different uh, countries have dealt with that differently. And I think we need to be having the same level of sophisticated conversation about data and about online life in that way. Some things are expected to be private forever and there is no, no one reasonably would think that that is something that is public. Um, but actually the, the reverse is true too. There are some things that we do do online that we do expect that they are public. And I want to see that kind of conversation happen when we're thinking about sharing data. Ask, the, ask people, let's have, let, let the citizens, they're better educated than many of the bureaucrats I work with that when it comes to technology. That's, I want those kinds of conversations to be had publicly. And then if a data trust is the right tool, great, let's do that. But I think we're, we haven't had the right kind of conversation yet. Agreed. Uh, Dor Dor Dorota, can I, can I ask you, you work for one of the world's largest community shapers, physically mm. shaping the physical form of, of place and therefore, you know, how we experience life in, in a lot of ways. That, that's a pretty big responsibility. Um, sort of two, two questions off the back of Amy and Jessica's comments there. Um, can I sneak in the first one? Why did you go to Lendlease? You're at the Reserve Bank of Australia for a decade. <laughs> Tell me why you went to a sit to work for a city builder. And then secondly, you know, ease into a bit of a response and contribution to this last dialogue, if I can. Sure. 
So the primary reason I actually went to work for the Reserve Bank was because I wanted to give back to the Australian people. Where do you have an organisation that actually has its own act? And within the act of the Reserve Bank, it actually says it needs to make sure that there is employment for all of the Australian people. That's something extraordinarily profound. So everything that you do internally has something for your community, not just at a local perspective, but at a state and federal. So you can imagine that was a huge <laughs> battle to try and go back into the private sector. And the reason was um, actually, we call him the Dus, he was the founding father of um, Lend-Lease. He was talking about the triple bottom line in the 1970s. Now, many companies were trying to scratch their heads around that in the early 2000s. And when I say triple bottom line, that means not only are you chasing the money, because unfortunately we do live in a capitalist world, but also how is it environmentally responsible, but also socially responsible? And if you have these three factors together, that helps build that story around, are you meeting the community expectations? So Amy and Jess, exactly what you were talking about, it was in the DNA of the company. And I felt comfortable <laughs> moving back to the private sector because it was something well worth being part of. And as soon as they said it was placemaking and placemaking is really, you know, after all, it's very different to everyone because what is a place in residential? What is a place in China? What is a place in New York? It's very, very different. So that means you would have access to so much different data, so many different community expectations, and it's actually really giving back once again. We're just really a tool to help having something a little bit more permanent um, in nature in the future. So that's why I made the shift. So my integrity is still intact. <laughs> I hope all of my government friends can still say so uh, as much as possible. But I think that's also in part why I bring a fresh lens um, potentially to say, what is it that we can do from a government lens and make sure we have that a bit more permanently based also in private sector because everything we do should be triple bottom line at the end of the day. Now, <laughs> the other half of the question, which I hope I've answered the first part, and uh, I kind of want to touch a little bit about uh, basically two definitions, if I may. So Jess, you were talking about we need to have, I guess, a clear understanding of why we're using the data and why you know data trust might be the right vehicle. And I really think that's the case. So if I can give a bit of it, because I'm a technologist at heart, if everyone remembers blockchain, everyone got super excited. They thought it was the silver bullet for anything and everything. And quickly people got disappointed because they just tried to shove this in any possible means. But actually, simplistically, there was three principles for blockchain that you should be able to use it. One, it's distributed. Two, it's a database. And three, it should be a ledger system. That's it. And I feel the same thing needs to be for data trust. And we don't quite have that definition. I know the Open Data Institute says, and it's quite simply, it's an independent judiciary stewardship uh, measure of group. Great, but that, oh my gosh, what does independent really mean? What does stewardship of data really mean? What does judiciary mean? Because the history of trust actually came from a legal standpoint, which mm. is somewhat problematic. And I like my history. So just to give you a little bit of a history lesson, how it started was in common law uh, in the 12th century around that time what would happen was people had property they would go off and on behalf of mother england go on crusades so someone needed to protect their land while they were away Allah the trust so now what we've done is and this is really important to understand history and etymology of words just like civic we've taken this concept and trying to again shove it into civic data trust we're not going away we're still here we're living in the place but what we do need is to democratize the process to make it available for us. And like Jess and Amy said, we're not data scientists, all of us, but we need someone to help curate it independently for us so it comes back and gives us that purpose. And what people keep forgetting, that's why my title also has science in it. 
science doesn't mean you just use the mathematical, you also use other disciplines to try and come up to the solution. So this is why this is starting to become really uh, prominent right now in our conversations. Um, Amy, uh, I'm going to get a little bit a little bit academic, and I'm going to come to you. You know, when I Google Civic Data Trust, the first sort of you know above the fold is sort of three articles by you, the ODI pilots, a couple of academic articles, something I wrote last year about something. Uh, it's pretty scant, right? It, 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 it's pretty scant. Um, the, the, the idea of trust, as Dorotea said, has been around for a long, long time. Um, in, in, in all of your reading, uh, endless reading around this topic and writing, and also considering application of data trust to New Zealand and other sort of use cases. How do, how do you describe our collective current sort of thinking, definition, application? Because the word that comes to mind for me is sketchy, uh, still very young. What's your take on where we're at? Uh, in terms of the word trust? Well, civic data trust. Right, um, as you say, it is, there's a, there's a fair amount of conversation going on and it's generally buried in very densely written academic texts. Um, and I'm not sure if, if uh, our lovely readership, I'm sure that some of you are super into that, but for a lot of people, it's completely inaccessible to try and read. One gets to about sentence two and you can feel your eyeballs blazing and your brain trying to shut off. So there's fantastic conversation going there, mostly around, um, and, and just to broaden it out to data trusts, mostly around whether or not these things have fiduciary duties or not, which is why the definition is changing and people like the ODI are suggesting other terms like data institutions. Uh, but trust itself, just, just going to the word trust, which is, I would argue, a core part of the term, um, different cultures have very different meanings for trust, uh, both in, in spoken language, you know, what do you mean when you say you trust somebody, but also what is a trust? People will go back to thinking about the legal, like when it comes to property or owning stuff and what that means. And, and it makes the conversation fascinating because we keep trying to, as, as Dorothea said, sort of glom new ways of thinking onto old words and they don't always work very well and they get really, really confusing. So I'd say where the conversation is at right now is, is it's nascent and it's fascinating. And that's what I mentioned earlier is we've got an incredibly wonderful opportunity at the moment to start defining what this means for all of us, not just for the technologists, not just for the data scientists, not just for governments, not just for citizen uh, bodies, but what what that means for each one of our cultures. Um, if for people are interested, if, go and have a look at what the uh, conversations happening around digital identity and trust frameworks, for example. They're absolutely fascinating and the same question keeps coming up. Where are we at? What does this actually mean? Because if, so I'm a word person by training and, and, and other things. And I reckon if you can't come up with a shared definition for something, you're straight out of luck. It's gonna be almost impossible to work together on it. It needs to be a shared definition, which means a whole bunch of people are going to have to argue with each other. But the conversation's progressing, and I will say that um, with what's happened with COVID-19, a whole bunch of people are suddenly starting to think about it a lot more in terms of data control, in terms of privacy, but also wanting to share data for the public good. What does that look like? How do we think about it? How does this impact our cities and, and our rural regions? I live out in the country. What does all of this mean for us? Most, I think, people want desperately to contribute, but want to be safe. 
as well as they do so. Um, we want to try and keep the bad actors as, you're never going to get rid of them, right? But we want to try and marginalize the bad actors and, and prioritize the, the, the good actors. Um, how do we do that? Nobody's entirely sure. But the fact that we're having these really strenuous conversations, I think is important. I want to see them a lot more out in the public domain though. To some extent, it's still a bunch of wonderful multidisciplinary nodes arguing about it, but we need to elevate that conversation and broaden and democratize that conversation. Um, maybe I shouldn't use the word democratize because that presumes a certain kind of political structure, but broaden that conversation out uh, in, into the public domain. You know, I, I want to see people writing editorials arguing about data trusts <laughs> and other kinds of things. I want to oh. see like letters to the editor where somebody's like, I am not sure about this. That, that would show me that we've got the level of engagement where I think we could start trusting that we have an ability to get to answers that don't marginalize a whole bunch of people because at the core of it, I think data trusts could help to unmarginalize a whole bunch of people who are generally left out of the conversation. If we don't get it right, it's AI all over again. We're, what we do is entrench bias further and we entrench existing privilege further. I'm just going to make one final comment because I'm glad you said AI. I was having a look because I've got access to academic papers. Data trust as a term is not heavily used. In fact, one of the major research databases only has 30 articles around the last 10 years. But when you look at AI and ML, everyone's like, this has only happened in the last five years. Actually, papers were in the 1950s and 60s, but we just didn't have the computational power. So that means we haven't been talking enough about trust. And like you said, interdisciplinary, not just the lawyers, not just the computer scientists, but also behavioral scientists, policymakers. It's yes. not out there enough. It needs to be. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leverage on that. And I want to talk about place for a moment. You know, um, we, we, we all, we you know you guys are all involved in in place and people and and shaping the, the, the physical and the social um has has the explosion of our ability to sense in the public realm and i use the word sense as a default for collect data um the internet of things i mean we can sense every, anything you, you name it we can sort of sense it now um in near or real time, has that become a big deal? Is that potentially elevating this? And and uh, I, you know, I'm going to play straight bat. You know, um, in some way, Sidewalk Labs and Keyside in Toronto was a very interesting uh, lesson learned. I mean, there may still be another life for it by someone else, but 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 I think it's been a very interesting lesson learned because. Um, in some way, you know, it, it did lead some groundbreaking work around the idea of uh, labeling, identifying in the public realm, in the, in the civic, you know, how data may or may not be, be being sensed. Um, the urban data trust, the civic data trust was sort of another piece of work they were doing. You know, it was, it was a very interesting, you know, piece of work that I'm mm. sure everyone is stealing a little bit of. Um, so, so the, the, the advancement in sensing in our public spaces and places, for me, surely um, is is only going to remain, if not, you know, become become sort of, you know, more and more. Is is there is there a part of that that has really 
sort of fueling this conversation around data trust, in particular civic data trust, or am I making that up? Absolutely. I just wanted to, anyone. I just want to jump in super quickly, and then the other two incredible panelists will know way more about this than I do. But I think that we've got to be quite careful in assuming that quant data, so things that can be sensed by you know sensors, are the be all and end all of sensing our spaces and our places. Um, so I want to mention, you know, there's a, a relatively new thing called warm data, which is saying that data only makes sense in the contexts in which it is. The qual for those of you who love the uh, the jargon, um, how people are feeling about what what is their lived experience, what does that data mean to them. And I think that we have to be very, very, very careful as, as we generate all this data, which is super useful. And I agree, like it's it's fascinating that we don't think that that is all that human experience is. As, as I like to say, right. like humans aren't data and computers are, uh, sorry, cities are not computers and machines. We, we just need to make sure that we keep that that warmth and that, that sort of life-centered design around us because it's not just about humans, right? Places entirely about all of the life that exists in it. Mm -hmm. you've, I've got to jump in there because Amy, you've just touched on my absolute passion when it comes to data and, and how I see it misused so often, which is why I often start conversations with like, cool your jets, let's not evangelize it, let's think about what we're trying to measure. And if we think about the complexity of cities, we think about, you know, they are increasingly complex for lots of different reasons. Um, and what I'm very passionate about is measuring the human side of cities. What is the human, that, and, and using the, the words lived experience, what is it actually like to be in this neighbourhood? And, and what frustrated me about my background in urban design is as designers we're encouraged to measure the height and width and floor area of things as though if we get the balcony depth right, we create livability. Whereas that's actually not the formula. Sure, balcony depth is relevant, but also it's not the most important thing. And so um, understanding lived experience, you know, where I see data misused or misunderstood the most, it's where it's used as a way to automate or replicate something that we did manually. So, well, we've always been able to stand on the footpath and click pedestrians and count them. Let's automate that and that'll be better data. But what if counting pedestrians isn't the most important thing we need to know? The busyness of a street does not tell you anything about other than how many people were there. It doesn't tell you whether people are increasingly, you know, uh, well, there's more well-being, there's a better economy, there's more place attachment, there's more resilience. It doesn't tell you any of that stuff. And what is really exciting to me right now is because of the way our lives are digitised through so many different, you know, things we're touching all the time through our phones and our cars and our apps, there's other kinds of data that is now emerging. So we at Nabalytics talk about this uh, a spectrum of, of, of data about humans. There's opinion, like what is their opinion? You get that from surveys. Opinion is democracy, that's important, um, but it's not everything. Like if I, if I missed the tram this morning and it was raining and the tram was full, my opinion is gonna be very specific about public transport. Uh, the next one is perception. How do I perceive things? Am I attached to it? Do I see value in it? They're related to my opinions, but that's a much more, I think, a much more longitudinal way of thinking about um, certainly place and whether a place is working. And then separate from that is behaviour. 
And so what we what I tend to see happening in cities is measuring the behaviour, measuring the number of pedestrians and measuring people whether people like it or something or not, and totally missing that in between of like, do they value it? Are they connected to it? And what without going on too much down this, but what we're seeing right now in the face of COVID, there is no pedestrian activity, but in some you know, the activity's gone, right? But but we can still measure perception, we can still measure place attachment, we can see that in some neighbourhoods there's huge shop local movements and real attachment to those traders and those businesses and other neighbourhoods that is not happening. And if all you're looking at is pedestrian counts, you're going to miss that whole lived experience of those places. Now, now we're really starting to see the gaps in our knowledge and data and thinking because of this extreme situation where we're in globally. Hmm. Okay, I've uh, I've neglected the uh, the audience question <laughs> box here, so I'm, I'm going to throw a couple in just to keep the the, the conversation diverse. We've got a a question here from from Gregory. Um, where does the panel think the individual citizen sits when it comes to integrating public and private, integrating public and private of development, urban built environment? I think the summary there is where do we think the citizen sits on this? I feel like that's a Jess question. <laughs> I love Sorry. talking about this. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll try not to go on a on a rant. So Adam, cut me off if I talk for too long. But I think the citizen is a will have a very important opinion on this. And if we look back at real world examples of this, and I just mean not online examples or, or ways technology has changed the shifting boundary of. Um, public-private. Some an anecdote that I I think about a lot is when um, uh, satellite imaging became normal, and so there was a time where you could not see into anybody's backyard no matter what, and then Google released satellite imagery, and all of a sudden local authorities can see illegal swimming pools, illegal decks into people's backyards. Let alone now the resolution is so high you could see someone sunbaking without clothes on if you wanted to, but when it first started. Um, that didn't this happen. This is a family show, Jess. This is a family show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, uh, we what what was interesting at the time. I worked for Brisbane City Council at the time, and and I rec recall this very public discussion about what is that your backyard is private. It has always been private, and it's not appropriate for a local government to be able to now give you a fine just because there's this like satellite that can now take a photo and it was discussed and, and sort of agreed I just remember it happening through the newspapers through mainstream media I'm not sure what was happening you know inside council organization but um but there was this understanding that now satellite imagery was the new norm and it would be expected that it is now public you can see into your backyard anyone can look it's now public and so you can they had an amnesty you can get a fine for having your um, your illegal swimming pool in your backyard and, and I think when the public had to had to let bat that out themselves and I want to see that happening around data that, that recognizing that the environment is changing it will continue to change for the better as well um, and what what does that actually mean um, when we think of citizens expectations in that I, I, okay, I want to. I, I want to. I'm, I'm not saying we've gone off track, but I want to go a little bit deeper into civic data trust. Right? Let's do a hypothetical. Let's set one up. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna bounce off you, Dorothea. 
I mean, sure. you know, lend lease as a as a planner, a master planner, a developer, an investor. You, you run, you manage assets in mm -hmm. communities. You know, um, let me sort of start high level and then come in. First one is, um, I mean, do you see a day where a developer, you know, who often does a lot of um, focus group work, community engagement work, you know, putting draft things online, get your feedback, all that usual community engagement sort of stuff, theatre stuff. Um, do you see kind of the establishment of like formal structures that include the developer, the city, the local chamber of commerce, local community groups and residents, and there's a formal coming together there's documents signed you're registering the non-for-profit you're the you know strawberry hills community data trust i mean do you yes. see that happening in, in short yes and 100 percent and in fact lendlease has already started with a single purpose uh, with digital twins so we're already working with the government and that's already been you can read the articles around this where we're providing you know anonymized domain knowledge data from lendlease but also publicly available data, for instance, in Barangaroo, to enable all of the you know, fire workers for easy access, safe access. And the purpose there is to ensure safety of people in Barangaroo. So therefore, everyone understands why am I collecting XYZ data? So in the case of you know, the Brisbane City Council, it was not very clear why they were collecting satellite images. Oh, it was to ping us later on. If you told the residents early on, you would have got a massive <laughs> onslaught of people saying no. But because this, I'm not saying this is a data trust by any means, but this has been a partnership with data sharing agreements, but this is a start, it's a specific purpose. Safety in the local community, specifically for our first um, priority, uh, you know, members of society to get in there. So very, very clear. So once we do that, then we start building on top of it and continuing from there. One thing that continues to frustrate me and a lot of people, I guess, uh, in Australia is the fact that, you know, domestic violence, the police force, the not-for-profit, you know, community and uh, family centres can't share data. So what happens is they all know about one issue in a household, but they're not talking and therefore they can't prevent it. Now, if we had a data trust that was obviously independently verified in this hypothetical world, we could prevent certain deaths. We could prevent these people in society growing up and being bitter. They could actually be good, you know, citizens. But unfortunately, we see this prolonging because we have these agreements, these data sharing agreements that limit it because we think it's good for privacy. Let's go back to the purpose. What is the purpose and work our way backwards? And what does the community, the private organisations and government want to achieve out of it? So in short, yes, I definitely think that's the case. And it has to be a collaboration. It can't be one party. So technology groups, and we've already talked about the Toronto wonderful team, let's call them pioneers. They've done the hard work for us and we realized there were some mistakes that were made. And one clear message was there was no purpose, there was no NDAs, there was no IP that was identified up front. They didn't do any of that. So they just went full experimental mode. The problem is that's humans involved. This is not a little Petri dish. This is not some simulation on a computer. This was people. And that's getting into dangerous black mirror sort of territory. So what we do need to make sure is that when we do have this cohort, it's absolutely concrete and clear and we bring the interdisciplinary view not just policymakers. please bring the behavioral scientists in please bring biologists physicists urban designers planners but bring everyone together so you can iron it out and move forward would anyone on the panel consider our level of maturity data maturity 
city building maturity or, or data driven city building maturity in either Australia or New Zealand at a place where we think we could kind of do some of this? You see the shaking of heads. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's very, very hesitant at the moment. I mean, I mean, let's call it a pilot. What about a pilot? Yeah. Yes, Amy. Can I say, um, um, and I use this quotation all of the time. I should have it tattooed on my forehead. The futures here is just unevenly distributed. Thank you, William Gibson. So I would say that the answer to that is it depends. <laughs> it depends on. Uh, the exact city, it depends on the exact use case. Um, yeah, also I just wanted to very quickly go back to a couple of things um, that, that two of the other panelists have mentioned. What we're talking here is about developing new norms. Mm -hmm. Norms norms are fascinating for people who like to study them, which is often behavioral scientists, but you know, feel free peeps, it's awesome. <laughs> because they, they help us define how we live in whatever society size that we're in so so we're developing those new norms and as our data and our tech gets better i mean it started with you know pens this is technology things have changed and and we need to 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 keep dealing with that something that i've been thinking about for the last couple of years as well is for example if one moves into a new place what would it be like if a city or a town or a, a place had like a terms and conditions now not a 60 page document of 0.6 type written in hardcore legalese to make damn sure that you miss everything and they bury the lead halfway through. This is a lot of telco contracts. Um, but what if there was a TNC written in plain English that says, hey, this is how this neighborhood works. For example, we've got surveillance cameras everywhere. Hey, it lets people know that this is operating so you can make some informed decisions about whether or not you want to operate there or not. The next thing along could be also showing people the data trust and saying, you do have a lot more control over what happens than you might have thought. This is the way our neighbor operates, these are the TNCs, but it's not in Facebook opt-in or opt-out, it's a, you can opt sideways, for example, you can opt three out of 20. And that's, I think, where data trust and civic data trust could come in incredibly useful as well. It's giving agency back to citizens, so it's not what's done to us and at us, it's what done is done with us and for us. So, if one of the yeah, okay, okay. Sorry, just one one little comment, and actually I'm so glad Amy mentioned the terms and conditions, because there's a famous quote that says, when you consent to the 60 page of terms and conditions, it's not consent, it's surrender. Yeah. Okay, so the question I wanna ask now is, where if one of the key principles of a civic data trust is to be a steward of data, um, distribute the value of data more equitably. Where place or sector, where do you think the, the, the biggest sort of early wins could be? You know, is it health? Uh, is, it, is it community development? Um, is it local government? You know, who who could who, who could get benefit from a civic data trust? Where are the quick wins? What sector, public, private, discipline? Where would you start? I think health's one of the highest one, but it's one of the most dangerous ones. I would not suggest one starts with health, just because getting that wrong is just, so it's not a quick one, but it's an important one. Transport is an obvious one. 
I think about transport a lot. Um, getting people to to free up transport data and and share it better would be unbelievably helpful. But 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 wouldn't I be right in saying, Amy, that it has been transport where some of the, the, the that's some of the best data that we've got at the moment. You know, both in in public and private hands. You know, like Strava. You know, Uber's releasing more and more data. I mean, of all of the disciplines, that's a pretty good one, though, right? It is, but notice, notice the silos there. Notice the lack of necessarily control that we have over our data and what's done with it. You know, I can say to Strava, yeah, you can use my data, I cannot use your service. That to me is not a civic data trust. That's not a trusted independent third party who's sucking it in, doing the necessary to, to make it safe for everybody and then making strong choices about who can do what with that data. Because we're talking down to the unit record level here, I think with data trusts, right? Mm. Uh, and, and also, I just think about transport a lot, but how we, how we move around, I think it's also less risky than health. I think health will always be the huge, like the massive, massive, massive one and ties into well-being and ties into to everything else. But I'll shut up now because I'm super curious about what everyone else has to say. Yeah, I was just Jess, going to say, New, yep. uh, I was gonna say New South Wales, I can't talk for the other states because I don't know them so well. I reside in New South Wales. They do have to, and I think it was enforced by the federal government to have a 10-year plan. And in the 10-year plan, there was going to be operational metrics. And that's a great start. So what of those metrics do you want to actually showcase back to the citizens? Some of them actually talk about homelessness, employment rates. So how great would it be, and this is going to be how I answer the question, for every single local council to build their own little mini trust based on the high priority of those particular metrics. You've already got that in New South Wales. Every single one of you, whether it be in regional or city or urban areas, so you've got the figure of what the purpose is. Now let's figure out what you want to do presenting it back and sharing it with the citizens and what they're happy with. Because guess what? Unfortunately for every single city and local council, it's a different priority. Maybe it's not homelessness in your area. Maybe it's about affordable housing, which could then relate back to homelessness. Maybe it's also the fact that, for instance, there's not enough hospital beds. Is it because there's not enough doctors working on weekends and therefore patients can't go and get you know, the outpatient cycle? So what is it specific that is the burning pipe on your area? And yes, maybe health is a little bit tricky. Unfortunately, there is quite a lot of privacy legislation there, but start small. Like we talked about, there is not enough experiments, safe experiments that is happening on data trust to actually start building this wonderful body of knowledge. Yeah, I, I agree with the other panelists and I think you know, transport is a great place to start and I don't think we've made a start much at all yet. Surely there, there is lots of data there because we've created instances to collect digital knowledge as people are transiting, kind of, uh, <laughs> except you don't have to tap off any public transport in Melbourne anymore, so who knows where people got off the tram. Um, and also the, the siloing, you know, to use Amy's word, of that data, it's, it's almost impossible to match those data sets together and create something coherent, even if you could get your hands on MyKey data in Melbourne. So the, 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 those data sets, it's such a missed opportunity because they're not created with analysis and sharing in mind. You know, it's so, the reason at Nabalytics we collect right from the source of, um, you know, Google Maps and other things like that is because nobody else has touched it and aggregated it before we get it. You know, if we try to bring in census data or anything that's already been pre-aggregated by another user, we just can't match it together anymore because there's so many technical mistakes made to that data by others that we have no visibility on and we cannot trust 
that that uh, the analytics that come out of it if other people have sort of mashed it together and that's the big problem with transit data at the moment is when it does come out it's already pre-computed by others and then is is virtually unusable for anything creative just oh, you go amy yep you go i just wanted to add on to this because I, I was thinking about it and we're very much talking about unit records so individual humans but of course that is far from the only purpose for things like civic data trust a whole bunch of it is trying to get private sector companies to let go a, a little bit so people can try and generate some value out of what happens when you bring that data together which is why you need that trusted independent third party because from what i've seen they're very unlikely to try and share data with each other for a whole bunch of reasons normally beginning with commercial <laughs> <laughs> you know, and sharing with government. So if one's thinking about, as, a, as we've spoken about smart cities, although I'm glad to see that, or interested to see that the smart cities term is starting to change, um, and, and digital twins is what are the things that people really care about in cities, right? So it's health related stuff, it's pollution stuff, it's energy stuff, it is transport stuff, it is urban planning stuff, um, all of which contributes to both our climate change and what our noise pollution and air pollution and all of that is like and our livability our wellness like do we like moving around this place or do we get in our cars and go from office to home mm -hmm. do we have a vibrant shopping community or and, and we live on top of our shops and restaurants or do we have different sectors and and every city does this differently but with some of this data and and as we get better at, at sharing it and finding ways to share it equitably um and ethically uh, amongst mm -hmm. ourselves we can also start to have conversations about things like zoning about mm -hmm. things like infrastructure spend um, and I think that that makes it, it sounds terribly dull but it's fascinating and it's incredibly important to the cities that we build over the next 30 years I mean look at what happened with cars right a few decades ago cars were the newfangled thing and we built cities for cars and we stopped building them for people and now we're lumbered with this infrastructure for potentially the next 100 years and it's already been killing us so what do we do about this and I think that data trusts are a way to yeah to bring all of that data together from all of these disparate sources in a way where everybody has a very high trust like it's a very high trust feeling to it because emotions are really important to humans and everyone's generating value and and the value prop is really clear we share this so we all benefit <laughs> so so that, that I, I want can i <laughs> yes 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 that i'll be quick that that colloquial trust between people is so important here because so often the best partnerships or collaboration concepts can be derailed by the perception of a risk not even an actual risk so you know an example uh trying to get um any kind of data purchasing data from a bank or financial institution around purchases uh, we would love to have data that is the instance or the number of purchases at different times of the day we don't care what they bought how much you know in this scenario what they bought how much they spent not even necessarily what shop they were in but just the volume of purchases and when we when we pair that with our data around other things that are happening in that neighborhood you could see that you get a really rich insight into busyness and activity and cycles and rhythms of neighborhoods and um, but any there's this sort of perception issue that if we started dealing with transaction data we would suddenly be in this world of of potential identity theft and um, consent with credit cards and all of this and so it's a very difficult kind of data for us to get and 
that's the shame of it is that um, there's so much value that could be had by by thinking about the problems we're trying to solve and not getting caught up in this fear or like perceived fear of what could happen if the newspaper finds out credit card data was used for by the local government for example i want to talk about the value of data for a moment if i can because there's a couple of um uh there's a couple of concepts here that a civic data trust you know will, will sort of share data more equally okay or the value of that data will be kind of dispersed equally that, that that's sort of one of the concepts of a civic data trust so the the, the value of data is an interesting one jess in in, in your work I, I mean you rely on the private sector for data right you know rich data sets that come from you know big big companies um, does a data does a data trust a civic data trust ever get a chance to have a look in to provide that role if that makes sense like like you're not subscribing to any sort of civic data trusts are you you know what I mean like like sort of the commons there's no data commons or data collaborations out there it, 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 it seems like a lot of the most valuable data and we have seen it with COVID. if there is one data set that every local authority has wanted it's spend data so they can know where it's happening where it's not happening and you know you can sort of buy it from you know that many kind of you know big global entities so so th this this value of of data and who who understands it um is it just that the corporates are the ones that get it and, and we don't, government doesn't get it, the community doesn't get it. So share your thoughts around this idea of the value of data and, and you know, the idea eventually is that a, a civic data trust kind of helps share the value of data. But at the moment, we've kind of got nothing that looks like that at all. Am I being dramatic? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, I would say data doesn't have value. Analytics have value. And to do any kind of solid analytics, you have, you know, data itself isn't valuable. It's only when you're using it to count something or look for trends or predict or do those different levels of complexity of analytics that that value is brought. Uh, and analytics cannot be done without a, a, a solid understanding of the data pipeline and how that data was created, why it was created, what the edge cases are going to be. Um, and at the moment in Australia, we cannot get, we would love to get data from a civic data trust. That would be a preference because you know, if it worked out the way I would hope it does, we would have a lot more transparency around why the data was created, who created it, and we would have many, many different sources to pull together from to, to truth, um, and the analytics would be more robust in, in that way. At the moment, commercial private sector providers are the only option we have because we can get back to the source of when the data was actually created without that computation problem of other people having pre-aggregated it. And that's the challenge that we have when we access you know, the ABS census data is that we can't cut the neighbourhoods up the way we need to. And so we can't use data that is already pre-aggregated to statistical boundaries. Now, I know why they don't release household by household data. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that, but if that was coming through a data trust and I didn't have to worry about people being able to access one household at a time of data, that would suddenly become so much more powerful. So I think in Australia, we're, you know, 
very much in our infancy of that discussion so government is fearful and I, I think actually the cavalier attitude that many private sector data providers have like Cambridge Analytica is making it worse because it makes governments go oh my gosh no we don't want to be like them they're the bad guys and that, that sort of um, polarizing discussion isn't helpful when this is actually the future we just have to negotiate the way to get there and, and in a way without the government stepping up and saying we are going to take control of this and do something in our own way it will just happen continue to happen in the private sector and I will continue to get data from Strava and Google Maps and others and have not not a huge amount of visibility about how they've created it and what they've done with it but it's the only option that I have for example thoughts from the panel on this one it's uh, it's not to say we don't have anything. <laughs> I can't talk for New Zealand, but uh, we have some things obviously with uh, open data in Australia government. They've got a number of websites. And I know we talked about in the last time, the data exchanges, there are a few cities in Australia that are starting to publish more of their data. And some of it is actually being commercialized. But like Jess was saying, it's not enough for every single different purpose. And this is where the trust comes into place because it's going to help define and filter that purpose. So by the way, it's not to say there is no data trust in the world. Open science is starting to have a much bigger movement. So things around genomics, because guess what? If we're going to do a sequencing or a vaccine, that's in the best interest of everyone, not one private organization or not even one government. So same thing here, where do we give that data? And if I can give you a personal example. So just when you were talking about, you can't get down to the unit you know, statistical level. When I was living in Germany, um, I was studying there for a period of time and I was there during federal elections. I was surprised how much data you could have for every single local region on who voted for what party, what was the primary, what was the secondary, what was certain, uh, what did they think was the economy going to be like in Germany versus the world? Because they thought, the residents, this was important to give back to everyone, including scientists, to do some analysis. Now, they are a very, very sensitive country in terms of privacy, but for the purposes of federal elections and government, they thought that was good to be open versus come to Australia, we don't have many polls that go through the entire country because we're even a smaller nation. We deem that, no, you don't, sh you shouldn't know my political view, which is fascinating to have a look at. Um, uh, go, Amy, over to you. Oh, no, I'm, I'm just reflecting on hearing that as well. So something with, with the various places in which I've lived over the world and, and, and the various cultures with, with, with which I've been involved, I think a lot of that has to do with whether the cultures are high trust or low trust. And the interesting thing is that high trust and low trust cultures don't necessarily map onto standard liberal or conservative or democratic or not democratic, not even slightly. And if one assumes that one is generally wrong, but high trust cultures where people trust each other, like on a personal and societal basis, where there is a strong sense of community of place, I think are generally more comfortable with sharing stuff and opening stuff. But they're also willing to get into drop down, drag out fights with each other, which is how they ended up high trust, because they're willing to have these really complex, difficult discussions with each other. Whereas low trust cultures are often a bit more, I think, conflict averse, and they're not very comfortable with it, and therefore they don't really trust anybody, and, and stuff starts to get all about risk aversion and compliance, right. as opposed to, you know, it's the more reactive, as opposed to what is the best thing that we could do with this? And let's get into a staunch conversation about that. It's really, really watching the mix on it. Um, I'm going to turn to the question uh, box for a moment. Let's let's clear some of these as we as we sort of slowly ease uh, ease into the sort of the end point here. 
how are data trusts expected to be funded by taxpayers, by donations? I mean, I, it's a it's a great question. And of course, you know, we, we're in a nation here in Australia where we expect government to pay for everything. But the, the whole idea of the civic data trust is that we're kind of all in on it. Does anyone want to take a stab at that? Who funds the data trust? <laughs> it's a great That's question. That's actually very... It is a fantastic question. And if we can solve that, that means we can also solve who do we trust <laughs> at the end of the day. Because if we had only one party, then it would be seen that they are biasing or potentially monopolizing the direction of the trust. So if it was only government, then all of a sudden we become antagonistic around the government. If it's a private entity, then you're saying, well, why are they funding it? Is it a university? Again, you think they're admirable in terms of their research purposes, but would they then be directing research for a certain reason? So it almost has to be, and again, we're going to be talking about purpose, whatever is the purpose, who are the right collaborators in that? And then who are the ones can fund it in equiportion or you know, relative portions there? It cannot be one entity, nor two really. It has to be the people that are going to be effectively benefiting from that. And ideally, I would love to see also a day that even though we get this on our tax statements, where did our wonderful money go in terms of tax? Where is my data going? What products were made out of this? What artifacts, what insights? And how did that help me? So that really helps the transparency. Mm, interesting. Okay, how this is gonna work is one response per question. The first person to jump in to answer it can take it. So here's another really, uh, another really interesting one. Um, so privacy exposure. I feel like with data, you know, we're having a conversation around data trusts. Oh, that's relevant to privacy, right? Well, hang on, that that then it's, it's you're like you're pulling you're pulling the thread of a jumper and it just keeps going. Oh, but what about security? Oh, okay. Oh, well, what about governance? Oh, well, if you're going to talk about governance, you've got to talk about ethics. So does the data does the data trust have a scope that kind of covers the entire spectrum, or what? Does anyone want to sort of approach that question? Yes, I mean. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's why they're, sorry <laughs> to be glib, but yeah, and this is why they're so fascinating. Um, and and we, I think we've all touched on uh, those words. So we've touched on privacy, but again, it's not always about privacy. This isn't always going to be about personal information. And I think it's very easy to get sucked into that conversation as the only way that we look at this, but no, not necessarily. Um, at, the, at the end of the day, no matter what anything else is, data trusts are all about governance. Like what you do with the data and how you how you get that to work. Now, when I say governance, I'm not talking about one of the classic definitions where you know we talk about board as the governance, but I mean like how you actually govern the data. Um, we haven't spoken a lot about security, possibly because none of us are hardcore security nodes, but security is a massive part of it as well, and that's I think where some of the um, tech issues may not be particularly well solved yet. Um, given that InfoSec is kind of a massive thing right now <laughs> and made of sticky tape and glue sometimes. But yeah, it, it will touch on all of these things, which is why the more people involved in the conversations and, and each data trust will be should be fit for purpose for exactly what it does, funded in the way that makes sense with the people involved that makes sense with all of the governance and security and everything else provisions that make sense for that. I don't think we can or should have a... a one size fits all model. Um, I think that ends up in a very, very bad territory very, very quickly. It just makes everything much more complicated and it takes longer to do it that way. Amy, your comment there around security, uh, 
you know, it's like if we were to redefine the, you know, the, the hierarchy of data needs, you know, security, is it, is it, I trust that you'll secure it. I'll trust, like, what's the front door here? Is it, is it trust? You open the trust door and then you've got privacy and security. It, it's kind of like, you know. <laughs> I think it's a positive feedback loop, mate. Um, I, I think, you know, if, if I see people, so, so one of the reasons that I don't use, for example, a well-known uh, video conferencing set of software at the moment is I've watched what they've done over the years with it and I have developed, well, my trust has plummeted, um, so I don't use it because I watch what they've done with security. So I think it's going to depend enormously on the conversations that one has. There are also people where I don't need to go and check their infosec staff like situation because I trust that they should be doing this okay. We just need to keep having the conversation again and again and again with, with each other and again, roping everybody into the discussion. The stuff is, is complex, but also depending on the data, security may be less of an issue. Depend, privacy may be less of an issue. We don't know until we have the conversations. Uh, yeah. I've got a question here around, you know, it goes back to participation and civic engagement. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, it, it's not going to be fixed with technology. What institutional structures will be needed to facilitate participation by citizens in discussions about data, not just the collection, but also the use? Yes. <laughs> so, so silence can speak a thousand words. Okay, let's keep going uh just measuring I was just going the, to say yes i was just going to say uh, we would we should have either government or certain institutions helping bring their quality in terms of data literacy that has to happen mm. because not everyone uses even a computer at work not everyone understands why people are asking for their data or even that their data is useful so I was reading a CRC around the food bank in New South Wales. And what was lovely was they were actually saying is we're they're not a data trust, but they're trying to be acting in such a way that we're going to help farmers understand why they need to collect data. What are the private entities that are also going to be using it? What purpose is to make it simple for them? So we need to have those structures. And again, if there's a purpose to find, we know what sort of organization and technology companies can help them, what urban designers and planners, what other measures, you know, from not-for-profits can help be there. But that, we do need to bring that equity up. And it can also be one day, I would love to see in schools that people are going to be also educated around data, because we are now seeing you know, mathematics, languages, et cetera, sciences, data is a different discipline. And the reason is because it has unintended consequences in how it's being interpreted and what is the context behind the scenes of it. So yes, apologies for the philosophical answer for whoever asked. I hope it answers it or gives you some direction. And, and I'll, 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 I can add to that too briefly because I should have been able to answer it on the spot. The, the, we need to think about engagement with citizens on this like we do with engagement on other matters around investment by government in any way not just to inform and placate them like we do now, but to actually use them as part of a discussion of scenarios and trade-offs and all those other, that, that level of sophistication with discussion. And that's not had at the moment because there's a fear about perceived risk and that you've got to be black and white about these things where actually that's not the case. Correct. Okay, okay. Um, we're, we're coming to the tail end and I want to kind of, do a little bit of um, summation here um, 
before I, I sort of wrap. So um, it, it seems like we're all sort of cheerleaders for the idea of data trust and civic data trusts. On paper, the theory, the principles, uh, absolutely. Um, we're still seeing a lot of the interest and activity a little bit kind of on the academic side in some theoretical papers, a couple of pilots in terms of civic data trust pilots, ODI late last year, good stuff. Everyone should go and have a look at that. Um, I, I, I know there's collaboratives and commons in our region here, Australia and New Zealand, but we're yet to sort of Google and see Civic Data Trust Australia or New Zealand sort of in practice or in pilot. I could be wrong, I don't know. Um, so we kind of want to do this thing, but um, we're not really at the moment. Uh, why is that? We've touched on issues around trust, you know, trust between citizens and the government, you know, um, trust between each other, I, I, I don't know. Uh, our level of data literacy in some sectors, in some areas within the general community, um, you know, is, is sort of obviously an opportunity for, for improvement. I think the whole COVID-19 thing has been very interesting, whether people like it or believe it or not, data has been a, a, a daily topic. You know, we've been using numbers and, you know, we've gone to the place in Australia of having the COVID safe app. So there's, we were sort of mainstreaming some of these concepts around data and gathering it and privacy and then using it. What's the, so my question back to the panel, uh, what's sort of the breakthrough moment or opportunity? Or if we can re, if we reconvene in 12 months time, are we just gonna be having the same conversation? Is there a, is there a breakthrough opportunity that's kind of on the horizon here? Over to you guys. It's, I really hope not, I do not want to be having the same conversation in 12 months time. What I actually do hope is that everyone that's listening on this panel actually raises their hand and says, I've got a great purpose. I wanna partner with you and you, let's go for it right now. We've got the funding, we've got the motivation, let's do it. And there's a purpose, obviously. Don't sit back. Let's try this, let's experiment, let's produce back for it. And don't wait for others. If you've got something, even if it's a pilot of two, three people, great, let's start. I'd, I'd like to second that motion as well. I mean, this is something that I say a lot is, is hashtag, because, you know, millennial, but like hashtag better together. We only get the stuff done is, is to some extent if we start working with each other. So yeah, if you've got a data set that you're unsure how to open, if you've, or, or you've got data that you're unsure how to access, or you've got a concept where you think this would be great, put your hand up, get involved in the discussion and like, get it done, start, start trying this maybe just don't try with the most difficult and potentially risky ones on the other hand you might be a huge insurance company and you can totally have that sorted out so but keep the conversation going as well it, it's no fun if we're just howling into the howling to the moon <laughs> right, Jess. It, it, it lands with you now 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree, of course, with the other panelists, and I think you know, trying to start that health, health, for example, is an obvious place to start because there's such a need for that data. But that's the hardest place to start because that data is valuable at an individual level. But starting with other data types that are not valuable at an individual level or are valuable at a, at a herd level, like transit and any kind of city metrics around energy use, stuff like that. No one cares house by house how much power is used, but actually at a street and suburb level, you can get some really fascinating research and insights out of that um, but it's so much easier than we think it is you know and I think that's what I want to urge the, the listeners today about is that the barriers to entry are all but gone other than it, that the perception and discussion the technology is there to let this happen we just need to have honest conversations around what is it we're trying to prevent like what what are we what does privacy mean and what are we trying to stop happening and then what could the opportunities be and have those conversations without fear because the technology is ready to support this that's not the barrier anymore well thank you uh, all, all all three of, of my panelists for for sharing those final comments and responding to that question um, and and on the on the topic of um, of dialogue and continuing the conversation uh, we have uh, our rolling monthly data dialogue series uh, sort of planned out for the rest of the year um, you can see coming up there on the screen we've got city building a city analytics capability next month uh, open data lessons learned. The plan there, and Amy, this will be an interesting one, the plan there is in July to talk about lessons learned with open data, not how sort of great we have been or how we're doing it, but what have, what have we learned from that. Um, digital twins for the city uh, in, in August, shared data agreements in September. Um, we might have to do one final one to see how this kind of all all, all, all wraps up together, but um, uh, jump on the, the Smart Cities Week uh, website to register for those, scwaustralia.com. A few other things, our podcast, of course, the Smart Cities Chronicles, bunch of data stuff going on there. Um, a few weeks ago, we launched for the Digital Twin Nerds on the call, our digital twin hub for Australia and New Zealand. Uh, head, uh, head over and check that out, uh, register and become part of the community. We do not sell any data for third-party benefit. Uh, our Bounce Lab um, think tank is underway, looking at how an economic recovery can be digitally enabled and data-driven. There's some exciting stuff going on there. That is my last slide. All that I have to do now is, on behalf of the audience, uh, Dorothea, Amy, Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today, uh, sharing your views. Uh, I think we've given it a good go trying to unpack this civic data trust idea. It was a bit of a windy road, uh, but it was interesting. I had fun. Uh, I hope the audience um, learned something as well. Uh, encourage the audience to uh, uh, connect and follow um, the, the, the panellists uh, and uh, hoping that uh, everyone keeps well, stays safe, remains highly optimistic. Uh, the, the world is going to get really good uh, day by day. Uh, as things get back to normal uh, and wishing everyone a fantastic week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank it's been you. an honor. Bye-bye.